The word uh, consideration is the one that you see behind me right now. The word uh, consideration. And that may, I don't know what comes to your mind when you read that phrase for your consideration. That, that word, it, what it means is to think about it, right? If something's for your consideration, it's for you to think about it. In fact, if you were to call somebody, you wouldn't call me this, but if you were to call somebody considerate, what would that mean? That would mean that they were thoughtful, right? That's a synonym of that, that they're thoughtful, meaning that they give great thought to how they treat other people. They're considerate, right? And so when you think of something being for consideration, what it implies is that something is meaning to be thought about, having deep thought given to it, maybe even meditative thoughts, which is what we're going to see today. In our passage, the author of Hebrews, which we don't even know who the author is, but he's a pretty sharp fellow. He's really hard to teach his, his words. But uh, in the book of Hebrews, he says, consider Jesus. What does that mean then? Think about him. <laughs> He's worthy of your thoughts. Consider Jesus, he says. Something about Jesus should dominate our thoughts. And the author's point that we're going to see this morning is considering Jesus should determine how we view the world, how we view our role in the world, in our families, in our workplace, in our friend circles, everywhere. We should consider, think about, be mindful of how it pertains to our life with Jesus, for our consideration, for our thoughts, to think about it. How we respond to trauma, how we respond to conflict, hurt, suffering, consider Jesus. You see, Jesus didn't come just to leave his mark on your eternity. He came that he would leave his mark on your day-to-day -day thoughts as well. What about him are we to consider? And why does it matter? This is what we're going to see this morning in Hebrews 3, okay? Hebrews 3, 1 through 6. Look with me as we read, and um, we'll make some observations here, okay? It says, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, and the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. The word consider is, is meant to, in, 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 again, in the line of thought. So we've, we finished chapter 2 last week, and we come to the first verse of uh, chapter 3. And what I want you to see is that this word consider, again, again, mean to give your thoughts to something. But in the original language, this word is meant to sort of pivot our thoughts. It's to say, now, you, we've, we've looked at all these things in chapters 1 and 2. Now, consider some new things. Okay, so he's going to throw this word in there to say the author is going to move in a new direction. Now, it's important to be reminded of the audience of this letter, just as it is to any letter that we read in God's Word or any letter that you read, period. The audience matters. The recipient of the letter matters. And so the recipients of this letter are Hellenistic Jews. That just means Jews that don't live in Israel. They lived rather in the surrounding areas of the Roman Empire, the Greek-speaking and Greek-influenced world. Hellenistic Jews. Now because of that, the word Hellenistic matters because they're Greek-speaking, but the word Jews is what really matters, especially in the book of Hebrews, because they got a lot of tradition. We read about one of those guys just a second ago, and we're going to talk about him a lot today, Moses. It's really important to think about the audience because everything that this author says is keeping in mind the people that he's writing to. 
Christ followers, but Christ followers that are still clinging to things that are devaluing what they now have in Jesus. Clinging to things like angels, Moses, Joshua, the law, the priesthood, and so forth and so on. And so what he's done already in chapters 1 and 2 is he's, he's hit on one of those, right? And he says, angels are great. Jesus is greater, right? He's going to go down the list. You guys ever see Home Alone? Do you remember in Home Alone when uh, Kevin, the little kid, uh, it's a Christmas movie. I know I'm getting a head start. Don't worry. I'm not going to start playing Jingle Bells or anything. Um, but in Home Alone, Kevin is, is Home Alone. I know it's crazy, right? And he takes out a BB gun and some of his, uh, his cousin Buzz's toys, and he sets up these baseball figurines, these like baseball players in a laundry chute. You guys know what I'm talking about? And he cocks that BB gun, and he goes, boom, and he shoots one. And he knocks down all those little figurines into the laundry chute. Now listen, that's not what the author of Hebrews is doing. He's not trying to knock down all of these traditional things in the Jewish faith. And sometimes it can read that way and say, man, he's really laying it into these things. Crushing Moses and then Joshua and the law and the priesthood and the angels. He's not trying to knock them down. He's saying those things are great. We should talk about how great all of those people, all those things are. But by comparison, it, it is no comparison. Jesus is infinitely greater, greater than angels, Moses, Joshua, the law, the priesthood. And so now we're going to begin a new major section in chapter 3 as he turns his attention from angels to Moses. As he says, consider Jesus. It says, therefore, holy brothers, in verse 1, you who share in a heavenly calling, he says, consider Jesus. And we're going to pause there for just a second. When he calls them holy brothers, and by the way, that word again can be translated brothers and sisters. He's not saying that men are the only ones that are Christ followers. He's saying all you guys, brothers and sisters. But he calls them holy brothers and sisters. That means set apart, morally different, a different standing from the rest of the world. He calls them holy brothers. Now, that means to say that they're Christians, okay? That they're not like the people around them. But he's not congratulating them for achieving this status of holiness. He's reminding them that they are only holy because of the achievement of another. That's what he just got done saying. Again, the verse numbers and chapter numbers are not inspired. Those were added later on. Right before he said this, he talked about Jesus being the high priest who has purchased salvation for them. Therefore, holy brothers. Man, what a, what a powerful statement. Because of what Jesus has done, you're my holy brothers and sisters. Not a congratulations of their achievement, but a reminder of the achievement of Jesus, the founder of their faith, as chapter 2, verse 10 said. And so as he's reminding them of this, he's now going to say, consider, think about a couple of things about that author of your salvation. I'm going to leave you guys with two of those things today, if you're taking notes. And the first one is this, to consider our builder, to consider our builder. <clears throat> The builder. And you're going to see an analogy that he's going to use a couple of times in a couple of different ways about a house, about a home. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But before we, we really talk about these, these next few verses, I know that this is a little unorthodox of me to do this, but you got to look at the end to know this house. He kind of uses it as like a big reveal, like a show you're watching, and then at the very end there's the big reveal of what he's talking about. We're not going to do that because uh, you need to know what he's talking about in order for me to walk through this with you together. In verse 6, he says it very clearly, this analogy about a house. He says, and we are his house, okay? You holy brothers and sisters, us believers, Christ followers, we are his house. So whenever we read now this thing about the house that is being built, all this stuff, understand that that is the church. That's the people of God. His house, the church. And we see this in other places too. First Timothy, 1 Timothy 3.15 
Right before verse 15, he says, I'm writing this so that, and he says, if I delay, then goes on, verse Timothy 3.15 says, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church, right? The church of the living God, a pillar, a buttress of truth. 1 Peter 2.5 says something similar. You yourselves are like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. Remember this, when we read the word house in this text, what we're seeing there is not, don't think of a, a physical house necessarily, think about God's people, the church. It's very important to understanding our passage this morning. It seems like every word or phrase is packed with meaning, and we're, gonna, we're not going to be able to bog down and look at every single thing, <clears throat> but I want to make some observations of a couple of words starting out that the author uses to describe Jesus, whom they should be considering. Look at the second half of verse 1. He says, consider Jesus, he calls him two things, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Literally, the word there is apostle. Your translation may something, say something a little different just for clarification so that you're not mixing up the words. But he says there, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Now, that's a weird word to call Jesus, right? Who are the apostles? The 12. That's who I think about when I think of the apostles. But that word doesn't mean the 12. It doesn't mean Jesus' buddies. It doesn't mean disciples. The word apostle literally means sent one. And those 12 were sent ones. But you know who else was a sent one? Jesus. Jesus was sent, right? He was sent from the Father, the sent one by the Father to accomplish salvation, which is what that next word means, high priest, to enable humanity to possess access to God. Jesus came between, and the good news of the gospel is that we come into this world separated from God, the holy from the unholy, the sinless from the sinful, and Jesus comes in as an apostle, a sent one, and says, I'm going to be the mediator that comes between and says, let's get these guys back together. A holy God and sinful humanity brought together by the blood of Christ Jesus. We're just kind of singing about that. The only reason this is a joyful house today is because Jesus has been our sacrifice. He's our high priest. He's our sent one who made salvation happen. And he did it faithfully. And this is the next word that's really key in verse 2, the word faithfully. In fact, you're going to see the word faithful four times in these next few verses. Look at verse 2. So he's talking about Jesus, apostle, high priest of our confession, who was faithful to what? To him, to the Father, who appointed him, just as, notice a comparison there, just as Moses was also faithful in all God's house. You see, the Lord sent Moses, a different sort of apostle, right? A sent one, he sent Moses to deliver God's people from Egypt. Long, long time ago, in Exodus chapter 3, verse 10, God said to Moses, come, I will send you, read apostle, right? I will send you to Pharaoh and you may bring, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt, into slavery, out of slavery, into freedom. Moses was a sent one who accomplished salvation. Do you hear that? I mean, it could not be more copy and paste. Moses was a sent one who accomplished salvation for God's people. What is Jesus? A sent one who accomplishes salvation for God's people, but he was the great deliverer, the final and definitive sent one who accomplished salvation, not from a nation, but from the bondage of slavery and sin. See, the reason provided here as to why Jesus is worthy of our consideration, back in verse 1, is that Jesus was faithful to the sender, 
Cannot emphasize enough the word faithful there. Faithful, faithful, faithful. Why is he worthy of our consideration? He's faithful to the sender. You see, the occasion or the context, the situation to which this author is writing is that the recipients of this letter, again, remember Jews, okay? Hellenistic Jews, but Jews all the same. They were attracted to Moses and to his big mark on their history. And as a result, were in danger of exalting Moses higher than Jesus. Moses was amazing, y'all. He did some amazing things, but they were in danger of putting him to a place he did not belong, higher than Christ. You see, Jesus' faithful work was becoming a matter of uncertainty and an afterthought, while Moses was still foremost. And can I just pause for a second? You may read that and say, silly Hebrews, come on, you know better than that. But it's really understandable, man. Moses has been in their history for generation after generation after generation after generation. And then suddenly, an itinerant preacher named Jesus that supposedly did a bunch of amazing miracles comes on the scene, and we're supposed to just say, Moses is no longer here. He takes the back seat to the new guy. That's a big ask, is it not? That's a big ask. And so in this culture, you got to understand, for them to continue to latch on to what has always been, it's pretty understandable, isn't it? I think that's pretty understandable. And so what happens is the author, rightly and fittingly, he doesn't seek to tear down Moses, nor does he deny that God revealed himself to Moses. He says Moses was faithful, just as he says Moses was faithful. But the point is, the one, a new sent one, has come that is more worthy of your consideration. And so pivot and shift your focus from the lesser to the greater which is what we see in the next couple of verses. Look at verses 3 and 4. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory. Notice, that doesn't mean that Moses is worth no glory. He, he, you know, highly tout that guy. He did amazing things. More glory goes to Jesus. As the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. See, the point is that it would be absolutely impossible for the Jews to think about their history without considering Moses. He was absolutely essential to their story. The Jewish people loved and cherished and highly esteemed him. As a national hero and the architect of Israel's collective way of life, Moses was above all comparison. I mean, it was like Moses wrote their constitution, you guys. He wrote their law. You could not have Israel without having Moses. Moses died at least 1,200 years before this book was written. Think about that. Think about how core he is to their culture. He died 1,200 years, more than that, more than 1,200 years before the book of Hebrews was written. It's the year 2022. If that's news to you, then whew. It is the year 2022. 1,200 years ago was the 800s. Think about that for a second. It was the 800s. Think about a figure in the 800s being that essential to your existence today. For reference, 1,200 years ago, uh, the first known printed book was printed, algebra was founded, and gunpowder was invented. You likely cannot tell me the name of the men or women responsible for any of those, although some of you guys probably want to know who's named a curse for the uh, founding of algebra, right? But listen, all of those people that did those amazing things, I mean, did you hear that? Algebra, a printed book gunpowder. Those seem to kind of still be around today, don't they? And you don't even know who founded them. You don't even know who established them. 
and all of them made a major mark on even our society, yet being unknown. 1,200 years ago, a guy named Charlemagne united Western Europe. He's known as the father of Europe. But outside of hearing that name before and maybe it ringing a bell or two, you probably don't know much about him, do you? In fact, you're like, I haven't heard that name since I was in eighth grade literature. And I'm kind of mad that you brought it up today. My point is 1,200 years is a long time. And it's a really long time to remember somebody, not just to remember somebody. My point is that Moses' name wasn't just known 1,200 years after his death. His accomplishments not just remembered 1,200 years after his death. He was hailed as a hero, intensely studied, and his life and words memorized 1,200 years after his death. Big deal. He's Mr. Big Deal. And so the author is writing to the Jews, the Hebrews, and he's saying Jesus is immensely greater than Moses. That's a big deal. Do you see what I'm saying? That's a big statement. He's greater than the guy who wrote the story of their people, greater than the leader who escorted their people from slavery into freedom, salvation. He's greater than the guy who called down plagues from the heavens and they came. He's greater than the guy that stuck his staff in a sea and it parted. Now I know God did those things, but he used Moses to accomplish them. And Jesus is greater than that guy. That's a big statement, right? The illustration that he uses in verse 3 is that a home doesn't exist without the home builder. That makes sense, right? That's a pretty good analogy. I wish I'd have come up with that. The home doesn't exist without the home builder. It makes no sense to highly tout the home because the home builder is worthy of the praise. The home is just a reflection of the brilliance of the person who constructed it. You see, Christ functioned as the architect of God's house. Remember, God's house being us, people, God's church, people. Jesus was the architect of God's house, God's people, the church. And architects are praiseworthy for their work, right? You look at a building and you say, wow, the architect behind that, that was, that's a pretty amazing work. That's why, you ever seen Seinfeld? Me and my wife, look, we love Seinfeld. George Costanza, what a character, right? Sometimes I think, I kind of get this guy, you know. But he always tells people, he lies and says that he's an architect. Why? Because he's got a fragile ego and he likes people's praise. The whole purpose of him saying, I've always wanted to be an architect, right? The reason why he says that is because architects are recipients of praise. This is true, right? The home has no, it really has no reason to be praised, but the person who constructed it, the person who made the ideas, the one who put it together, should be praised. Wow, what a brilliant mind of the one who put that together. You see, no one thinks the home deserves more honor than the one who built it. Jesus, as the builder of the house, this church, our church. And by the way, pause. I don't mean this, okay? I just want to reemphasize that again. When I say the house, I mean people. I mean the church. Jesus didn't build a building. He built a collective group, a movement of adopted sons and daughters of God destined for eternity with him. That's God's house. And Jesus is the builder of that house. The church is worthy of more honor than Moses, who was a member of it. You see what I'm saying? Moses was a member of it. And Jesus is worthy of more honor. Jesus established the people of God. Moses led them as a servant. Moses is a man. Jesus is the God-man. Moses turned water of the Nile into putrid blood. Jesus turned water into choice wine, which is greater. Moses was a sinner judged for his sin. Jesus was sinless, but he was judged for the sins of man, which is greater. 
Moses led God's people from bondage in Egypt, but he failed to lead them into the promised land of rest. Jesus leads God's people out of bondage to sin and promises to lead them, us, into eternal rest, an eternally promised land. Who's greater? Jesus is greater than Moses. Now, why does this matter? You're like, well, I'm not a Jew. I I get it. Like, I, I was raised in church. I know that Jesus is greater. So why does it matter? Well, we first had to understand that before we can get here. You see, this church to which we're seeing this letter written failed to see that Moses was not to be an object of their praise, but rather an opportunity to see why Christ was ultimately worthy of their praise. Moses was good, but he was not to distract from the great. You see, God has blessed you with many good things in your life, but you must not make them God things. God has blessed you with many good things in your life, but the warning is against making them God things. Your house is not worthy of your praise, but the God who generously provided it is. Your kids are not worthy of your praise, but the God who entrusted them to your care is. Your next meal is not worthy of your praise, but the God who gave it its flavor and sustainability is. Guys, the good things in your life should cause you to consider the God of your life. The good things are blessings. They're great, man. But don't worship them. Look to the God who provided them and brought them. The people up here on this stage, we have awesome servants. Moses is a great servant. It's okay to talk about a great servant. We have great servants who lead us in, in music. Praise God for them. They're not the objects of your praise. Shouldn't be. No one who stands up on this stage should be a worship object. We are worshipers, servants of the house, not builders. Many years ago, and say many years early in, in our marriage, um, we were online. We, we had some, some people that were close to us that were in the church. That was, it was a very large church and had a, had a large following, and it's nowhere near here, so don't even go there, okay? But uh, they had these videos online of sort of online testimonies, and that's a great idea. I love that idea to put online testimonies on, on the website and stuff, but they had these uh, testimonies online, and, and every one that you watched, and there were several of them, every one that you watched, they, they said the same thing. It was something, and it had different variables, and you plug in different things, right? But it said the same thing, and that was, we love, and they would say, the name of the church, because, again, name of the church, brought me out of addiction. This, this church healed my marriage. This church got my life back on track. This church gave me hope. Guys, there is only one thing about fellowship that gives you hope. And it is in our programs, it's not our staff, it's not our music, it's not our people, it's our God. And we can't get it twisted. We got to know that. Nothing here matters if not for the builder. The church is good, is what I'm trying to say. The preaching's okay. <laughs> the music is fantastic. Our God is better. Don't let the good things become the God things. These things are not where your praise should be. Your Sunday school teacher is not where your praise should lie. The kitchen that we throw down on Wednesday nights is wonderful. It's not where your praise should lie. All of those good things point us to the greater that God has provided them. I think the message is, is clear there. See the good things in your life as good things, not as God things, but consider Jesus, the builder, right? The second thing is to consider our hope. <clears throat> consider our hope. 
again, I just want to reemphasize that the author is saying that Jesus and Moses were both faithful. Again, Jesus is faithful just as Moses was faithful to their calling, to their being sent, their apostleship, if you want to put it that way. But Jesus is far greater than Moses. The builder is greater than the house itself. But now he takes this analogy in sort of a different direction. When he talks about Moses being a servant versus Jesus being a son, and one is greater than the other. And we see this in verses 5 and 6. He goes on and says, now Moses was faithful. There's that word again, was faithful. But here's how. In all God's house, again, that's among God's people, as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house, again, God's people, as a son. Pause there for just a a few moments. Servant versus son. Moses the servant versus Jesus the son. Now here's the temptation there. The tendency is to read that word servant and say, oh, so Moses is like, he's, he's low class. He's a servant. The word for that would be a Greek word called doulos. And, and that would be an appropriate word if that's the word that was used here. But that's not the word that's used here. That word is often sometimes translated bondservant or slave. That's not the word that's being used here by the author of Hebrews. He doesn't say the word doulos. Moses is not a doulos. He says that Moses is a therapone, which doesn't matter other than to say doulos would be a typical lowly servant, a slave, and a household. A therapone would be a person that held a position of nobility under authority of the one who appointed him. Do you see the difference? A, a slave, a servant would be very low, a doulos, very low. Moses has a very high position. It's just lower than the authority who appointed him. Does that make sense? He's a nobleman, has great authority in the house, but ultimately he's under a greater authority. Make sense? Those words matter here. The reason they matter is the author is saying that Moses had a place of rank and honor but as a servant, as a servant at the end of the day. He stands out as a faithful servant in the house among God's people, but he wasn't inherently superior to the ones whom he led. And there's a perfect parallel from verse 5 to a passage in Numbers chapter 12, verses 7 and 8. In Numbers 12, 7 and 8, Miriam and Aaron, again, this is Moses' time, okay? Miriam and Aaron are disrespecting Moses and God rebukes them. In Numbers 12, 7 and 8, it says, not so with my servant, Moses. There's that word servant. He, it says, is faithful in my house, in all my house. With him, notice how high this language is. With him, I speak mouth to mouth, clearly, and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Does that sound low? No way. That is high nobility and rank. That Moses is a servant, it says it here, but man, that dude was special. He was given a special position. You see, prophets had received words from God, but Moses spoke to God face to face. It's different. And the author saw and recognized Moses as a servant in the highest sense, not in the lowest. He's not knocking him off in that laundry chute, right? That's not what he's doing. He's saying Moses is great in comparison to others. But Jesus is simply greater. Jesus is not a therapon. He's not a, a servant. He is a son. The difference between a, a servant in this sense, again, a person of nobility, but ultimately under the authority of the Lord of the house, and a son is that a son is the one who would one day inherit the house and would one day be Lord. You see the difference? Moses would always be a servant, a, which is an amazing position. But one day Jesus, as a son, would inherit the household, the people for himself and function as its Lord. 
Moses serves in God's house. Jesus is son over it. Moses was looking after the house that Jesus was later to inherit. That's why it says in uh, verse 5, to testify of the, to the things that were to be spoken later. He was a steward that pointed us to Jesus. Now, the way we're going to kind of close is the way that the author of Hebrews closes, and he does so with an exhortation. I want to focus very closely on verse 6, okay? The last part of verse 6 says, and. So this is sort of, what do you do with all that? All this consideration, all this information, what do you do with all that? This is what he says to do. And we are his house if, if, indeed, we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. What do you do with that? Hold fast. It's an exhortation. Here's what to do with all this stuff. Hold fast to our confidence and our boasting in our hope. The instruction is to hold fast, which means to hold tightly, to hold firmly. There's an object to the holding, and the object is our hope. That's the instruction, but I want to focus on those modifiers that fall between there. Hold fast with confidence and boasting. Go ahead and throw those up there on the screen. That our hope is, number one, reinforced by our confidence. Our hope is reinforced by our confidence. That word confidence is one that's going to be used a lot in the book of Hebrews, and we see it here. I want to read from chapter 10, verses 19 through 22. Or really through 23, but let's, let's look at it together. It says, Therefore, brothers, in fact, just stop. Flip ahead in your Bibles, because I don't know if all those verses are going to be on the screen. I want you to see it with your own eyes. Flip forward to chapter 10. Flip forward to chapter 10, and I want you to see this with your own eyes. That our hope is reinforced by our confidence. That's what he says. Hold fast our confidence, is what he says. Our boasting in our hope. Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 23 is what I'm going to read. It says, therefore, brothers, same word, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter, let's pause for a second. What he's saying is that we can boldly and shamelessly approach a holy God. You know who couldn't do that? Adam and Eve. You know why they couldn't do that? The same sin that you're born into this world with. That's why they had to leave the Garden of Eden. And yet what the author of Hebrews is saying is something has changed, the hope. <laughs> something has changed so that we can boldly, confidently Approach the throne of God, because it's a throne of grace. So he says, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, praise be to the Lord. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, 21 says, and since we have a great priest over the house of God. Man, it just sounds like it belongs in the passage we're studying this morning. A great priest, Jesus, over the house of God, his people, 22, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water. Check this out. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. If I could say one word to summarize that last part. Security. Security. And the security is not based on your actions, your works. The security is based on the high priest who purchased that security. There is security in nothing else 
and no one else. You see, the world that we live in is grasping for security. The world grasps for security. <clears throat> they grasp for retirement plans. I got to have my, my back covered. Anti-aging efforts. I'm going to try to stay and live forever. People just turn out to look like zombies when they try to do all that, right? I'm just going to fight it. I'm going to fight death. I'm going to live forever. We're obsessed with security, aren't we? Generally speaking, I'm not saying everyone in this room. Generally speaking, we as a society are obsessed with covering our behinds and saying, I'm going to just preserve. I'm going to persevere. I'm going to stay. I'm going to be secure. That's why we take up weapons and defenses, retirement plans, 401ks. Make me secure. But listen, I'm not saying any of those things are bad ideas. My point is, none of them afford you lasting security because one day you and I will expire and you can't take anything with you except your Lord and the people you take the good news of the gospel. Where is security in an insecure world? In Christ alone, our hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. He is the cornerstone of this house of God. And we can be possessors of true, lasting security because of the confidence that was purchased for us. Cling not to the many variables that we try to strive and purchase our security with. Cling to Jesus, the author, the perfecter of our faith. That's confidence, you guys. And that's not like egotistical, arrogant confidence because you're not the source of it. It's confidence in our Lord Jesus who has afforded it to you. Praise be to Jesus. The second is that our hope is fueled by our boasting. Now that should sound a little weird. Our hope is fueled by our <clears throat> boasting. Isn't boasting bad? Mommies always say, don't boast, don't brag, because boasting is, is bad, is it not? Well, not if you boast in the only one worthy of your boasting. You see, to boast means to puff up in speech. It's to puff your chest out and say, I'm, you know, whatever. That's what boasting means. Um, Brooke gets on to me because I like to boast when it comes to things that don't matter, like sports. I love boasting. In fact, I boasted some on Twitter last night, and then Alabama lost. And so that's what happens when you boast, right? I slipped it into my message somehow, even though I didn't want to. There you go. Brooke, she used to get on me because I'd be playing PlayStation with a buddy in, in our apartment when we were newlyweds, and I'd be like, bro, you can't stop me. You, you can't hold me. I'm, I'm unstoppable. I'm, I'm undefeatable, and you're going to lose this game. I like to talk trash because I think it just makes it more fun, not because I'm being a jerk, but because it makes it more fun. And I want you to do it to me. Let's, let's, let's bounce the boast back, in, or let's do it to each other, right? And so she gets on to me on the basketball court, and I used to play ball in, in seminary, which remember that part, we're in seminary, I could get technical fouls and things because I was boasting and I would, I'd want to talk trash to the guy that was defending me and it just makes it more fun to me. But I realized that boasting is stupid because at the end of the day, you're not in control, right? Your team can lose. We're foolish, we're weak, we're wayward, we're lacking in discipline, lacking in self-control. We are finite and limited in our knowledge and in our wisdom. Why would we boast? It's a vain effort, is it not? A vain effort to boast, save in the only one worth our boasting. You see, Jesus is not foolish. He is not weak. He is not wayward or lacking in discipline. He is not lacking in self-control. Whereas we are finite, he is infinite. Whereas we are limited, he is unlimited. In our knowledge and wisdom, which is flawed, he is as flawless. He's worthy of our boasting, church. 1 Corinthians 1.31 says, So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. 
Don't cast out all boasting. Brag on somebody. Just don't let it be yourself. You see, true boasting in the Lord is actually boasting of the Lord. True boasting in the Lord is actually boasting of the Lord. Boasting of his great attributes, boasting of what he has done for you, boasting of what he is still doing, and of what he has promised that he will do. Do you brag on your Lord? Do you boast more around your kids about your team than your Lord? There is one primary source of our boasting, and it should be our Lord Jesus, and we should brag on him in the public and private square. He's worthy of our boasting, church. I want to notice one more thing. It says that we are his house, verse 6, and we are his house, his people, his children, if indeed we hold fast. If indeed we hold fast. Now listen, here's what that doesn't say. It doesn't say we will be his people if we hang in there. What it says is that we are his people if we hold fast. Not we'll wait and see. Not at the end end of the day, if you did a good enough job, you'll, you'll earn it. It says, if we persevere, we will prove ourselves to be his people. Here's why I say that. Because your hope isn't in how securely you are able to cling to him, but in how securely, by faith, he clings to you if you place your confidence and boasting in him. You see, In this passage, the author is afraid that in the hearts, the minds of these believers, the gospel is becoming a matter of uncertainty, a passing day's afterthought. They reach the end of the day and they haven't even considered many things in your day-to-day are worthy of your consideration, worthy of your thoughts, your meals, preparing those meals, your kids changing those diapers, your parents, reaching out to them, communicating, checking on them. Your chores, checking them off. Worthy of your consideration, your job, your work, being on time and punctual. Being at school, knocking out work and homework, taking care of the laundry. Many things are worthy of your consideration. But please, please, please hear me. Jesus didn't come to just leave his mark on your eternity. He came that he would leave his mark on your day-to-day thoughts as well. And there is no greater meditation for your heart than your confidence of your access before a holy God. Nothing should dominate your thoughts like your eternity that you have today because of the work of Jesus, the finished work of Jesus. He is worthy of your consideration. And there is no greater balm for the suffering soul, your suffering soul in this life, than boasting in the hope of the next. He's worthy of your consideration. So holy brothers and sisters, I don't say that to congratulate you on your achievement, but to remind you of your standing. Praise be to the God that afforded it to us.